It's been a while since I have been up here, and that has been somewhat by design because I was working on the Every Child video, and that was kind of my job for a month. Uh, but uh, it was also I, uh, some um, graciousness on the part of uh, Pastor Joshua. I usually help him carry the sermon load much more, um, but uh, I had asked him specifically, can I just not preach for a while um, as we were sort of walking through uh, dealing with Janae's loss, and, and uh, he said yes, and I appreciate that because he's been dealing with his own grief uh, as well. So uh, it's been a difficult season for us, but I love this pastoral staff and uh, really just very thankful uh, for you and, and uh, for the whole team to be able to surround us and say, you know what, it's okay. Um, you can deal with this and, and uh, we'll cover for you. So I appreciate that very much. So we're back and, um, and I'm going to dive into Psalm 50. This is... Uh, a beautiful psalm, one that captured my attention as we had the psalms class that some of you guys were, were in earlier this year. Uh, I loved it, and as I've been just processing through um, this season, uh, this psalm really came back to me. And, and um, <laughs> actually, I was sitting, my wife and I got to get away for a week for our 20th, so sitting by a, a pool. Um, with my laptop early one morning. I had a little tent for my laptop because I'm scared to death that something's going to happen to the water splashing. So anyway, I'm sitting here and, and I'm looking at Psalm 50 and I'm looking at the notes that we had done in that class and it just, there was something that really hit me about this season. So I want to talk about it today. So the Psalms, we often automatically assume when we get to a Psalm that David wrote it, but only about half the Psalms are attributed to David. Uh, There's a lot of different authors. This one is named. Some of them are anonymous. This one is named. It's attributed to a man named Asaph. And we don't know much about Asaph. We know that he was a Levite. We know that David had asked him to be one of the, the leaders of temple worship. Uh, he was from the tribe of Kohath. Uh, so he was probably um, a singer uh, as well as um, the, the song writer. He might not have been a singer. There was a, actually, there was a singer in the same time. You know what his name was? Get this guys who grew up in the 80s. His name was He-Man. <laughs> He-Man the Cantor. Isn't that great? That's good stuff right there. Oh, there should have been some like Bible crossover for some like, anyway, action figure. You pull a string and he starts singing, this is the day that the Lord has made. That would have been amazing. Um, anyway, we don't know much about him, but he has 12 psalms attributed to him. This particular one has three parts in the psalm, okay? The first part is an introduction where God is coming in and, and we're going to read that and it's very dramatic. And then there's two parts when he's addressing two different parts um, uh, of uh, this crowd, okay? And then there's a short introduction. So we're going to take those one at a time. Um, here we go. It's a beautiful piece of, uh, of poetry. It begins, the mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him is a mighty tempest. Uh, see, this is interesting because many of the Psalms 
In fact, the thing that draws me most often to the Psalms is when the psalmist is crying out to God and like there's always a swirl of emotions and the, the array of emotional language in the Psalms is, is just broad and vast and beautiful. This is one that's different though. This isn't going to be his prayer. This is going to be God speaking something to his people. And we see the setup. God is entering in. There's fire. There's a storm. There are pyrotechnics. Uh, there there's a great walk-up song, right? It's going to be good. He keeps going. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Selah. Now who's he gathering? Oh, he's gathering his, his faithful ones. So at the time, this would have been the Jewish people. This would have been uh, those who actually followed him, his covenant people, as well as the foreigners who had also followed. Do you know there was a whole bunch of Egyptians that came out with Moses in the Exodus? There were others too, and there was provisions for that in the Mosaic Law for people to join in the worship of Yahweh. So he's speaking to these people. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if we were saying, okay, who, who is this today? Um, this would be good old church folk. So we have to get this. He's not talking to the ones who are outside the walls. He's talking to the ones who are inside the walls. All right? We continue. Hear, oh my people. Whoops. Okay, yep. Hear, O oh my people, and I will speak to you. Okay, so he's, here we get into part two. He's speaking to the first group. Okay, you still with me? Hear, O oh my people, and I will speak to you. O oh Israel, I will testify against you. Uh-oh. We thought this was going to be like a pat on the back. Not so much. I'm going to testify uh, against you. Um, I am your, I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. And all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Okay. When we first went through this in our class, we had a great question to come up. Oh, wait a minute. Didn't God kind of institute the sacrifices? Yeah, he did. So isn't this interesting? He's saying, put them away. I find that fascinating. Now, he says he's not, he's not rebuking them for having them in the first place, but he's telling them sort of like this. I, I actually love the way he writes this, because he's just like, look, yeah, you're, you're giving me these sacrifices, and I'm really not hungry. <laughs> he's like, I already own all the cattle. And the birds, in fact, I, I've named them all. I know them all, every one of them. So if I was hungry, if I was really wanting sacrifices, I could just do that myself. I'm a chef. I don't actually need that from you. You see what he's saying? Like, that's, that's what he's saying. I don't actually need that. So... 
This was a thing that many people could not understand throughout the Old Testament. So many of them thought, okay, here's what he's instituted, so as long as we do that, we're good. But see, it was never about that. It was always about what goes behind it. So the sacrifices were supposed to be an expression of gratitude and worship before God. But when you lose that, you become mechanistic, and God says, put it away. He says this other times in Scripture, too. There's one time in Hosea chapter 6, when the people have totally rebelled against him, and Hosea preaches this unbelievable sermon, and he's like, Tell, probably this is the time he told his whole story of Gomer and his wife who ran off on all these things. And he preaches the sermon, and the people listen. They say, come, let us return to the Lord. And so they're ready to go and have this big sacrifice and do all of these things. Okay, let's do it. And God says, no, stop. I don't want your sacrifices. They're done. Put them away. But I thought you wanted sacrifices. Well, yeah, he wants sacrifices so long as they're actually flowing from a heart of integrity. But it, you can become seriously mechanistic in any external thing you do. Now, thankfully, we don't have the sacrificial system anymore. I'm glad that's never been a part of Christian worship. That was a part of every type of worship in the ancient world. I'm really glad that we don't have to deal with that. Uh, but there are things that we do that we know are just good things to do. Like, well, coming to church on a Sunday morning, that's a good thing, isn't it? Singing worship songs, it's a good thing, isn't it? What about praying with one another? Or we can get even more in our sort of charismatic uh, um, tradition here that, that we have, you know, like soaking music or times of... of uh, prophetic worship, or all these different things that we can have, and they're all good. But even those things, if they lose the core, if they lose the heart, can become mechanistic. And we might have God say, just stop. That's what he tells them. Just stop. So, okay, so what does he actually want? That's the question. What does he actually want? Well, he's not impressed with these things and he wants something else. So, he's going to tell him. All right? Are you ready for this? You got to get ready. Okay. Offer to God. Yes, yes. Offer to God a sacrifice. Yes, yes, yes. Of thanksgiving. seem a Okay, just be honest with me. Doesn't that feel a little bit lightweight? A little bit like, oh, Thanksgiving? Oh, well, that's kind of... It's kind of expecting something else. I mean, Thanksgiving is, is cool because it's kind of a jolly virtue, you know? It's like, oh, yeah. It's like an inspirational virtue. You know, you see the, all the videos that make you go, ah, oh. it's like they make you feel the way an America's Got Talent video with the golden buzzer. It like, makes you feel that way of like, yes, we should be, we should be thankful. Yeah, right, that's good. And we think of, we think of turkey and stuffing and, and, and apple pie. And it's like, oh, this is, oh, Thanksgiving. Yes, let's remember to thank God and thank one another for the blessings we have. And I want to tell you, I think that we're not nearly serious enough about Thanksgiving. That maybe we've never understood the gravity of it. And I, I gotta tell you, I don't think I ever have until I started to think about this recently, and I still don't think I'm nearly serious enough about this virtue. Now, it's a wonderful thing. This is a good thing. Is, is it's like immediate reward. Like, it's, it's good. It feels really good to say thank you and to get into that rhythm. But it's more important. It's not just important so that God feels good or the person you're thanking feels good. It's important because it's actually very foundational to our hearts of where we begin, and there's ramifications. 
This is, this is uh, um, these people that he's speaking to. It doesn't appear that they've done anything externally terrible. But what's happened is they have lost the heart of their rituals. They've lost the heart because it was supposed to be about Thanksgiving, and they've lost that, so all they're left with is the externals. When you've done everything right on the outside, you can start to feel really proud of yourself and then forget all about the source of those blessings. You know who I think about when I think about external mechanistic thinking in this way is the older brother in the prodigal son story. We all remember the prodigal because he w went like crazy, right? <laughs> But the older brother is over here, and he's so proud of himself that when his, when his, when his younger brother comes home, he, he's angry that dad is showing him grace. He's angry about the grace given. And the reason he's angry is because he himself doesn't understand that he has received even more grace than his brother. Because he's been home the whole time. And he could have partaken of his dad's gifts. He, he had been partaking. Every day he had been t partaking of things that his father gave him out of his own generosity. A home, a good job, all of these things, people waiting on him, all of the, this, this wonderful beauty that he had had. But he had lost the heart of thanksgiving so that he couldn't even see and be happy that his brother was being offered grace. And what happens very often when we become mechanistic and we forget to thank the Lord is that we think we, if we especially if you're in like, feel like you're in a pretty good place, yeah. And you start thinking, yeah, okay, I've kind of earned this. Anytime we start thinking that we've earned it, we have a problem. I think that's what God's saying to these people. Go back. Have a heart of thanksgiving. Perform your vows. In other words, follow through on your word to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you. And you shall glorify me. God says, thank me, and then fulfill your obligations. Do the things I've called you to do. But do it with a heart of thanksgiving. That's the proper order. And yes, it is reciprocal. There's reciprocal blessings as well. Now he shifts to the second group. To the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. Pause there. Once again, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the second group. The first ones are the ones who have done things externally right. Now he calls these ones wicked. But they're, they're people who have taken on his covenant. So in other words, they've, they claim God, but their behavior hasn't changed at all, which is a tragic thing. They hate God's restrictions and his disciplines, and they hate the limits that he puts on them. And there's more, too. He says, you give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. In other words, you talk terribly about one another. You deceive and you posture. You give yourselves license to say anything you want, even though you claim to be This is hypocrisy. 
Here's what he says. Ready for this. He says, These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. God says, I have kept silent about this. I've let you get away with things, and you've taken that as an endorsement. Or worse, you've treated your own priorities as if they were God's favorite priorities. You thought I was one like you. I think this is kind of a scary verse. Because we all have that temptation and tendency to create God in our own image. And this happens culturally and this happens individually. If you had asked somebody maybe in the Bible Belt back in, you know, 1950 or even later, I grew up in the Bible Belt, and there are specific things that being a Christian meant. And probably if you had asked me what I thought, or people who grew up near me, we would have all said similar things about what God's like. And probably it would have looked exactly like all the things that we care about. You know? Well, I think the same thing happens even today. If you ask somebody, you know, you're, you're whatever, you're run-of-the-mill Twitter hashtag warrior today. What is it that God is like? And well, God's like this, and he's against this. And it would, it would have been all of these modern th- sensibilities, right? And some of them I'm sure are true, but some of them it's like, okay, well, this is what the culture thinks right now, and this is what the culture is particularly excited about or angry about. Therefore, you're... We're kind of assuming that God is the same way. But I, I think, I, I think we got to take notice. Because God's not like us. He's a little bigger. He's a little better. Like Patty was talking about last week. Remember? His ways are higher than ours. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. He's not like us. And today, before, I, th- I, I think probably 30, 40 years ago, the mistake the church made, by and large, I'm painting with a very broad brush, by and large, the, the mistake the church was making, at least where I was growing up, is one of external legalism. Like, you go ahead and you, you do all these things and then you'll be okay, sort of adding modern day pharisaical kind of stuff. Today, by and large, the mistake that I am really concerned about for the, for the Western church is this, that God is love and therefore we can do whatever we want to do because he's, he's okay with it. The truth is, is that our culture is okay with it. Does that mean he is? He says, all of these things you did and I kept silent, you thought I was like you. And we today have to be very vigilant to look that our Western sort of, hey, anything goes culture, it's very, very Western. And like, don't even tell somebody they shouldn't do that or that's sinful because otherwise, then like God would never say that. I'm like, dude, where'd you come up with that? That is thoroughly modern, Western, really shallow thinking. But that is what is all the rage nowadays. And let me tell you, God is love. God is more loving than any of us could possibly imagine. And sometimes that loving heart seeks to to bring us in and embrace us and help us to overcome the sins that we're dealing with or overcome the mindsets. In other words, God does not look like Twitter would have him look. Just like God does not look 
like the way the church has cast him so many times. We, we, don't, have, we don't have a corner on this, guys. You see what I'm saying? So, here he is. He's saying, I'm not okay with this, with all of these things. And he's talking again, his big list. You throw the word of God behind you. Is that okay? Well, apparently not. These people were, he says, casting the word of God behind them. Not okay. Not okay. Having uh, uh, terrible problems with the way that they speak, being slanderous, being constantly angry and backbiting. Being enamored with possessions, right? And greed, as he, he alludes to. Uh, uh, immorality, as he alludes to. He's not talking about just hanging out with people who have these issues. He, he's not condemning that. Jesus himself was all about that. He's around people all the time with all kinds of issues and hang-ups and sin problems. In the middle of it, he's loving him. But what he's, what, the, the condemnation is this. What if you're immersing yourself so much? That, that you, your heart begins to shift with all the popular trends of the day where you can no longer see which way's up. You thought I was like you, but I'm not, he says. Are we doing okay? Yeah. Any toes bruised? I'm so not trying to step on toes, but this is kind of part of my job. But I want to assure you that before I step on your toes, I step on my toes all week long. This is the thing. Joshua can attest to that. <laughs> So, just trying to read what the scripture says. Okay, now, part three here, okay? Um, here he, here's, here's his conclusion. He says, make this then, or mark this then, you who forget God, uh, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. You see, he comes back to gratitude. Isn't that something? Here's his antidote to all of the strain. The antidote is gratitude. Gratitude is a bigger deal to God than we realize. Thanksgiving glorifies God in a very formative way. When we offer thanks to God, it puts everything else in order. The opposite of thanksgiving isn't just being quiet, isn't just not saying thank you. The opposite is, is a sense of entitlement. It's petulance. It's like, saying, it's like saying, well, you already owed me this thing. And, it's, and nothing's ever really enough, you know? That's the opposite of thanksgiving. It, it's a posture that says, I want more. And as soon as we get more here in the West, even that's not enough. You know why? Because we're the land of free refills. Nothing's ever quite enough. So anytime God gives us, a, you know, God gives us eternal life, but there's a lot of things he gives us that actually have restrictions and limits on it. There's a whole lot of things. And, and we could turn, we have this tendency nowadays to turn to all those gifts and to, and to be upset about them, that, that maybe they don't last forever, or maybe there's conditions or restrictions put on itself. And this is where, where I've been, because I've been thinking about the life of Janae. She's, she had been 43 this week, and, and that's young, you know? And that's a short life. 
And, and as I've been processing this, I'm thinking, okay, that's, that's too young. And I've been grieving, and, and, and we always advocate this here, and I always will, that in grief and in mourning or whatever these things are that we're dealing with, we bring them to God openly, and we tell Him. And so I think it's totally right and good to do that, to grieve openly and to say, even say, Lord, what is up with this? Like, we prayed, and she didn't get healed. What's the deal? I think that's right and good to come to Him. Are you, you hearing me? I'm a big advocate of that and work through this. But I also realized this. In the middle of grief, in the middle of despair or sorrow, there, if we're not careful, we can start to slide into petulance. We can start to slide, to sort of slouch into this place that says, that, that stays angry at God for taking someone away without thanking Him for giving them to us in the first place. And this is where so much of our culture is. But so much of our culture never acknowledges the gifts of God until they're gone. And then they say, how could a good God do this? Well, you don't think it was good in the first place if you're not thanking Him and immersing yourselves in His goodness. And this is what I have to keep coming back to, because so I, I really miss Janae. She was like a sister to me. She was very much a part of our family for the past 16 years. So when suddenly someone's gone like that, it stings. You guys know this. But let me tell you, she was with us for 16 years. And that is a gift. That is a beautiful gift that we did not deserve. It's not like God looked at us and goes, well, you passed the test, Jason and Sarah. You went into YWAM and did these things, so now I'm going to give you a sister. And she's going to be, no, it wasn't like that. It was undeserved, this wonderful person that he put in our lives. And she was with us for 16 years. And she was with this congregation for the last 10 years. And I know many of you knew her and adored her too. It was a, she was a wonderful gift, and she's gone, and I still don't like that fact. And we're still working through some of that, but you know what? I, I, I've, I, as I've looked so much at all this, I've thought, Lord, I've got to start there, and I've got to keep coming back. Lord, thank you for her. Thank you for her, Lord. Thank you for all of those memories. Thank you for all of the richness that she built into my children. Thank you for the way that she had our back like, like nobody we've ever seen. And, th and that is the beauty and the goodness of God. You see, he gave her life, and that it wasn't in this life, not eternal. Her body was not eternal, so she can't be bodily with us anymore. So, so that means we have to sometimes get gifts that, that run out. Do you see that? Sometimes they don't go on forever and ever. Can that gift still be wonderful and beautiful? Yes, it can. Even if it doesn't go on forever, yes, it can. Thank you for that relationship, that friendship. And I'm thankful that that will go on someday. But right now, we don't have it. So you see the difference that gratitude makes with us. You see, all of life is a gift at any increments. He gave it, and it's a beautiful gift. But see, this, is, this applies in so many other ways, not just life and death. This applies, this applies with the other gifts God gave us. What about the gifts of our bodies? What about the gift of sexuality? 
was reading G.K. Chesterton, who's one of my all-time favorite authors, and in his book, Orthodoxy, he, he was talking about the strange and wonderful nature of the gifts that God gives us, and one of those being marriage and, and, and sexuality. And he was saying how it never made sense to him as people talked about monogamy as unfair in his generation. They'd say, this is lame, monogamy. Ah, man, that's so rude of God to try to restrict this thing. And he says, I, I could never even understood it because I always thought, man, the gift of marriage and sexuality is so amazing. It's like this magical thing that God did. And, and, and to demand that there's no restrictions on that, that's really ungrateful. I thought, oh my goodness, that is true. Isn't that true? It's one of these things, it's like, well, if God is the author of something, and if he hands something to us, then he might actually have a say in how that thing is used. Don't you think? Because if he's the one who's giving it. In other words, guys, God has a right to rule our lives. He has a claim on each one of us. And I know this is an unpopular thing to say today, because for some reason, this in itself has become controversial to say that God might have restrictions uh, uh, about what we do with our bodies. But he's actually quite clear about the way that he intended the gift of sex to be used. But our culture has become petulant, and we've said, no, God, it's not enough. We want to do it this way. We want to have this, and we want to have as many partners and all these different things. Whoop, whoop, whoop. It's all rooted, rooted in a lack of gratitude. Do you see where this goes? More than that, we go one step further. What about salvation itself? The gift of salvation. Christ comes and he dies for a petulant, angry, sinful people. And he says, yes, even you can come back through me to Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And today, modern petulant man says, well, the way. And he's not the, he's a way. He says, no, I'm, I, am, I am the way to Christ. I'm the only one that came and laid my life down. I can bring you back to Jesus. And, well, that's a little rude because there should be more than one way. Like, how weird is this? So, so fine, let's just say that we could come and negotiate with God about, okay, all these other ways will also be ways of salvation. So, say he brings the other, you know, big five world religions, so Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, okay, all of these five ways are good then, okay? Okay, good. Would we stop there, really? No, nothing would be enough for us because we like the free refills here. We like to have as many options and choices because we think we're owed all of these things. Here's the way I would have ended up. I know we have college basketball fans in here, some of them. But I showed this several years back. This was, the, this was the bracket for the NCAA tournament in 1939. I'm looking at you, Stansberry. 1939, check it out. Eight teams. That was the size of the big dance back then. Eight, that was March Madness. All right? Yeah. Well, in 1951, they decided to double it. Ooh, 16. Ooh, the field of 16. This is huge. All right? 1975, let's go to 32. Oh, that's good. We won't get any bigger than that. Ah, 1980, 48. Oh, okay, well, that's a lot of... It's that's that's easy to make the tournament now, really. 48 teams get to make the tournament. Still not enough. We're going to go up to 64 in 1985. 64 teams. Oh, my goodness. Like, now you're kind of embarrassed if you don't make the tournament. But you know what? We need, we need four play-in games for teams that would never possibly make it even to the Sweet 16. So we have 68 now starting in 2011. And here's the thing. I fully 
expect there to be more play-in games for that tournament to grow, because nothing's ever enough for us. Now, this is a silly example, but this is human nature, especially here in the West, because we think it's owed. What about that team? They should really get, really? Everybody thinks they're owed things today. And when this crosses over to the way we relate to the Lord, it's tragic, and it's childish, and it's self-centered. You remember this, what Paul says in Romans 1.21? For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. When you forget thanksgiving, you're, you become darkened in your understanding. Your thinking gets really lame. And things can go south in your heart very, very quickly. Thanksgiving, friends, is a bigger deal than we think. In the New Testament, there's a, there's a real connection between grace and gratitude. In fact, in Greek, the word for grace is charis. And that word actually uh, is most of the time translated gra uh, grace. The other half time, it's, it's translated, or the other part of the time, it's translated as thanks. So sometimes it is, it's, it looks like grace, and sometimes it's the result of grace. And these two things are very intertwined, and there's all kinds of words that come out of that core, charis. And one of those things is this. Oh, I didn't have this on it. One of those things is eucharisteo. Can we have the ushers come and, and hand out the communion elements? Eucharisteo. That word... When Jesus was about to take communion with his disciples, it says he broke bread and he gave thanks. And that is the word in Greek, eucharisteo. And it literally, it's, it's the giving of thanks. And you see charis right in the middle. It's the giving of thanks as a result of grace. And it's a beautiful term. I've gotten in trouble for using this term before. Some people think that I was advocating the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation by using the word Eucharist. I'm like, actually, that's what our more orthodox brothers and sisters, that's a term that they use. Thank you, sir. Most of us today say communion or the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. There's all different kinds of words, but it's simply this. It is the time when we come and we take bread and we take wine or juice and we say, Lord, we are going to thank you just like you thank the Father. We don't just idly remember or we don't just think, yeah, okay, I remember that Jesus died. Okay, cool. It's more than that. It's where we come back and do what Jesus did. We give thanks. Because here's the thing. If he really did die for us, if he really did create us and then die for us so that we could be made new, then everything he's given is really his. So these bodies that he's given us, it makes total sense for him to have something to say about that. But here's the way I designed you. Here's the way I want you to walk. Here's the way I want you to live. That only makes sense because he made you. And to use our time, he's the, he's the giver of life. So don't you think he might have something to say about how we use our time? He died for you. He has a claim on each one of us. 
The same with our resources. You can get upset and say, well, Lord, how, I, I don't really like the fact that you have asked us to give. That's not, that's, I mean, it's my money. And I think he would say, really, is it? Really? Because it all flows from my hand. Friends, Jesus is not just our Savior. He's our Lord. He's our King. And the best thing that we can do is come and remember what he has done routinely, regularly, because that is how we get properly ordered once again to say, Lord, here I'm coming back to you. I recognize you're the source. I recognize this. I say thank you for all that you've given me. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread. He passed it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we remember you this morning. And we say thank you for what you've done. Let's take it together. And then he poured the wine. He said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for shedding your blood for the remission of our sins. Because, Lord, we've done a lot of things that you told us not to do. So we thank you, Lord, for your redemption. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your blood shed on our behalf. And Lord, we desire to never, ever take that for granted, but instead to order our ways as you've designed. If you agree with that, let's take this together. We have the prayer servant team come up. I want to say this. I understand this has been a bit of a heavier word this morning. But this word is really all about grace. So no matter where you've been in any of these areas, if you, if, if, all I'm suggesting is that however we've blown it, God has grace. Christ has grace. He says, come, come to me, come to me. He doesn't leave us in a place of turmoil. He doesn't want to leave us in a place of, of anxiety and condemnation. He's given us an opportunity to start again in thanksgiving and to, to, to walk this time with the empowerment of his Holy Spirit. Can you guys take that? Can you receive that? All right. Lord, we thank you for these guys. I pray that your spirit would be on each and every one of them. Bless them, Lord, in all the ways they need to be blessed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Come and get prayer for anything, guys. Thank you.